Blog Talk Radio. The following program is brought to you by Bread and Roses, feminist news and public affairs on KBOO Community Radio in Portland, Oregon, since 1978 the longest-running feminist radio program in the country. We are now proud to bring our women-produced programming to Sylvia Global Media Network. KBU program has been made possible in part by KBU Foundation members and a grant from Redirect Guide, committed to promoting progressive regional businesses based upon the values of sustainability, localism, and social justice. Complete business directory and resource guide at redirectguide.com. Welcome to Bread and Roses, feminist news and public affairs on the KBU airwaves since 1978, the longest-running feminist radio program in the country. I'm your host this week, Leanne Kranz, and tonight we honor Joy Harjo, poet, musician, activist, and member of the Muscogee Creek Nation. We'll air an interview we conducted with Joy earlier this week from her home in Oklahoma, and will share some song poems that she personally selected for the program. Before we air our interview, this is Joy Harjo with Poetic Justice, the song for Anime Pictou Aquash. Appear each morning 
after entering the next world to come back to this amazing It is a way in the natural world to understand the place the ghost dancers name after the heartbreaking destruction. Anime, everything and nothing changes. You are the shimmering young woman who found her voice when you were warned to be silent or have your body cut away from you like an elegant the one whose spirit is present in the dappled stars. They prance and lope like colored horses who stay with us through the streets of these steely cities. And I have seen them nuzzling the frozen bodies of tattered drunks on the corner. This morning, when the last star is dimming and the bus grind toward the middle of the city, I know it is ten years since they buried you. The second time in Lakota, a language that could free you. I heard about it in Oklahoma or New Mexico. How the wind howled and pulled everything down with a righteous anger. It was the women who told me. And we understood words. The right meaning of your murder. That was Joy Harjo with her band Poetic Justice with For Anime, Picchu Aquash, from the album Letter from the End of the 20th Century. And now we share an interview with Joy Harjo conducted earlier this week by Bread and Roses producers Delphine Cucenzo and myself. In this first segment, Joy talks about the indigenous roots of blues and jazz, the kinship of poetry and music, and the brand new musical she's writing. Joy Harjo, thank you so much for being on Bread and Roses. Such an honor. Um, you're going to be in um, in Portland next week, next Wednesday, um, at the Pacific Northwest College of Arts. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what your visit is going to be about? Yes, I see that I'm uh, the Edelman lecture, and it's mostly I guess most of the lectures deal with art. And I started out as an artist first and, you know, will maybe return to it, of course, being a poet and a musician and writer and so on. 
you know, they're all part of the art. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> what I'll probably probably focus it around is really, but it'll, you know, it'll basically be a, a talk performance and with, you know, I'll be reading and speaking and so on. And, you know, one project that I'm very involved in involves um, the indigenous, you know, indigenous peoples being part of the origins of, the American musics of jazz and blues. So I could see that becoming kind of a centerpiece, but, you know, singing and performing around, you know, around that, as well as reading maybe some from my memoir and um, Crazy Brave and so on. Hmm. I heard you or read a quote from you about that very thing. You pointed out that uh, the birthplace of jazz, Congo Square, uh, was originally... Uh, a place where the native peoples gathered of that area. Mm-hmm. That's an unknown yeah. history uh, for many people. Yes, it is, and it makes absolute sense mm-hmm. when you when you hear the trail, the music trail. And that music spoke to you like no other. Is that correct? Well, music does. I mean, I think it's music and poetry, um, music and you know, in language, music is music and. You know, the music, everything makes all around us. I, there was another quote I read of yours that said that poetry and music belong together. They were soulmates from mm-hmm. the beginning, not meant to be parted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think your work think really so. <laughs> yeah, your work really speaks to that. Yes, because you think about it, you know, if you look at any poetic tradition, almost I think almost every poetic tradition in the world has its roots and it's home and music and dance. They're all together. Mm-hmm. And your performances of poetry really um, changed the game for me. You know, I had been, I avoided poetry and definitely poetry readings because, you know, it was always a podium and hushed tones and these long introductions of awards and accolades. And, and it was just so apart <laughs> from the soul of poetry as I've come to understand it through Native poets, and uh, you in particular? Well, I think if most, if, if America, I guess, or, I, you know, I've been to, I've gotten, because of my poetry, I've had the opportunity to travel all over the world, my poetry and the music. And the one thing that I've come to see is that, you know, for most people in the world, and that and this belongs with to, you know, even with traditional indigenous communities, it's not something that, lives only in in, in text or in um, classrooms where you're asked to tell what a poem means, but which intimidates people and often frightens them away from poetry. But mm. it's a very living, you know, a, many, most cultures use poetry in a way, you know, in the everyday. I'll never forget going to Colombia, South America, and being part of uh, this huge poetry festival, festival, and I'll be going back again this July. It was amazing. You know, we were poets from, I think it's the largest poetry festival in the world, and poets from all over the world. And they would take us out on these uh, day trip excursions. There would be the huge events at night in the city, and but we would go out on excursions to perform or present poetry to communities. And I'll never forget going to a... Um, I was in a group that went to an amusement park, <laughs> of all places. <laughs> they announced, you know, 
if you want to hear, you know, poetry over here, the place is packed. Wow. And it's to kids. I mean, there were kids, all kinds of people, and a lot of the poetry was translated. And, mm. you know, they listened just the, with the same kind of intensity as somebody would go to, you know, a U2 concert or whatever, you know, <laughs> or, uh, you know, to listen to music. Um, I've also um, seen you um, speak and perform um, a, a little bit. It was at a um, uh, the Pan American Speaking in Languages on the Edge, and there you pr you perform actually also in uh, in some native languages. You um, had poem in Navajo and some in Muskogee. I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about um, uh, how how you came to um, to write poetry in uh, in native languages. Well, my own tribal language is Muscogee, but mm -hmm. I, I learned Navajo, actually, is I learned more Navajo first. I was, I didn't start, I started writing poetry when I was a student at the University of New Mexico. At the same time, I was learning Navajo and was part of indigenous rights movements, and that's what really inspired me writing. And um, so I began to, I always think of my poetry coming emerging into this world along with the sound of Navajo language and how that language works. It's very much in there if you read, especially my early work, and you know the language, you can kind of, you know, you know Navajo. It's very much in there. Probably It's got a lot of space in the way the poems think and move about on the page. But I don't particularly write. I don't write in Navajo. There was a, a poem I read by Sher Sherwin Bitsui in Navajo. Yeah. That was his poem. And I kind of butchered it. I, you know, I haven't spoken the language for a long time. It's a hard language. Yeah, it's a beautiful language, but mm -hmm. I understand a lot of it. And then with my own language, I tried writing songs, writing songs with the language. And my pronunciation is still not spot on at all. Mm -hmm. But at least I'm living at home now, and so I hear a lot more of it, and I think it's getting better. Mm-hmm. And so do you use the term uh, song and poem interchangeably? I think I do, even though there is quite a there can be quite a difference to it because there's certain song forms and you know, you write for them in a particular kind of way. And when I first started working with uh poetry and music, I took just straight poems and when you're speaking you know, it. you don't worry, the, um, it's different. And so with the early Poetic Justice stuff, hmm. we were doing uh, reggae-inspired um, music. I was working with John Williams. He and I would often get into scuffles because he would say, this isn't pure reggae. The reggae, you do this. And I said, but we're not doing pure reggae. We're doing what I need to do. <laughs> we're doing our own thing. And um, then I started to sing. And my early efforts were horrible. I'll never forget. You know, it's like I, it's, I kind of, I've, I've gotten up after somebody's read a long bio and said, you know, the there's all these accomplishments, but my list of failures is much, much longer. <laughs> and one of my failures was try, was thinking I could sing, sing, and I needed a little. You know, I, I do innately have a voice, but I needed to, I needed to work on it first. Hmm. But I kept hearing it. I kept hearing the singing. So, um, and then what I have found with singing, the phrasing, there's a different thing with phrasing that happens. Hmm. And so I had to, you know, that shifted. 
that shifted uh, the poems in a way so that often when I'm writing poetry poetry, I don't think about those forms necessarily. Now, when I'm writing poetry a song, I'll often, you know, I've got the rhythm, I've, you know, a different kind of rhythm, it's a different kind of form going on, and I use that to craft the song around. And, I mean, when I'm writing poetry, I'm also listening to rhythm, but it's it's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you were actually writing a musical um, mm-hmm. right now. That is that a brand new direction for you? Yes, it is. I mean, I did a one-woman show and performed it several places uh, called Wings of Night Sky, Wings of Morning Light. And it's going to be published by Wesleyan University Press, the play will be. And it was a one-woman show with another musician, Larry Mitchell, and he always was telling people that he was part of a one-woman show, but he wasn't the woman. <laughs> <laughs> so that was some musical, you know, writing was a musical, mm-hmm. but not anything like what I'm working on now. What's that process been like? Well, right now I'm starting all over. I mean, I keep... It's due. It was due the 28th of February, and I keep getting so far. I've got it all outlined, and then I recently I threw out everything I've written and started over. So, oh, no. But it's, been, but it's good. I mean, it all counts towards something. Mm-hmm. And so I'll have the first draft in in two weeks. How exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. I mean, it's it's a different form, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's it, it's it's storytelling it's in you know i find that that playwriting is it combines storytelling with poetic impulses mm-hmm. and, and you're dealing with uh you're dealing with a stage which is different from i've done some screenwriting too and it's different from any of you know it's different Ex, you know except that there's um yeah you have to think about the stage instead of in film you you know you can go a lot more, you know, you work with different kind of space there. Mm-hmm. That was Joy Harjo, poet, musician, activist of the Muscogee Creek Nation. We'll share more of that interview this hour and play songs handpicked by Joy for this program, including this one. This is Joy Harjo with Eagle Song. August is Sagaramasi Palmati Mowi Tawigas Pogahoyan Ye Jiadi Mong Agadlechka Heath Lin Pogalajan Abiyat To pray, you open your whole self to sky. To earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know that there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can know, except in moments steadily growing, and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. We see you, see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing we are truly blessed. 
Because we were born and die soon with an eternal circle of motion. Joy Harjo, poet, musician, activist, with Eagle Song from her native Joy for Real recording. You're listening to Bread and Roses, and now we continue with our interview with Joy Harjo, conducted, conducted earlier this week from her home in Oklahoma. In this segment, Joy Harjo talks about the presence of fear in the life of an artist, especially women creating in a man's world, and her experiences feeling voiceless in white privileged realms, including feminist settings and the prestigious Iowa Writers Workshop. This is Joy Harjo. As I researched for this interview and read pretty much everything I had and could get my (laughs) hands on, it seems that your voice is so strong and so known as being a strong voice of truth and justice. But when I look back at your life, the things, the direct attacks 
made against your creativity from your stepfather, from the junior high band teacher who said you couldn't play saxophone because you're a woman, you know, all the beatings you took for trying to sing or to try out for a play. And, you know, then as a young woman, you were dealing with direct attacks on your body um, from relationships and, you know, historical trauma. So many things could have silenced you, but they didn't. You know, it seems that this fear, this trauma, took you to the threshold exactly where you needed to be to discover your voice, your poetic voice. And I wondered if you could share what you've come to discover about fear, what you've learned from it, and how you just dealt with it. Well, that's a big question. Yeah. What I was dealing with through all the crazy brave, but the one thing I will say that my story is not unique. I think it's the story of many people, and I'm particularly, I think it's the story of many women in this world. Uh, you know, especially women who um, are creative, are creative in any way, and go about to um, to work in a world that is, you know, essentially, in many ways, is still, and I hate to say this, a man's world. Ultimately, it's not. You know, you cannot create anything in this universe without male-female. And so the world, the real world, the true world, is there's a balance, you know. And that's that's the reality, that's the true reality beneath all this other crap. Beneath all this other crap is that, you know, it's a, it's a world ultimately of balance. And I think it's important to remember that and to think of that and I guess to focus on where you're going and and keep moving. I think that's what's happened for me. And no, I, I didn't always just keep going. Sometimes I stopped. Sometimes I did give up. I did give up, you know. I did give up. I just, you know, sometimes I didn't believe. And yes, fear has been one of my major teachers. It's been a... And, and it, it did almost... You know, it did stop me at times. Yes, I found a way to keep going, and often I found that way through um, through the spirit of the art, through what was being given to me. Poetry, the spirit of poetry, literally came to me, and um, there's always, there is always, I think one thing that's very simple, and this is something I've learned and I use it every day, is that it's, it's the power of asking, the power of asking for help as you, you know, work on a musical and hmm. and then that help tells you, well, you know, this isn't working. You're going to have to start all over. Not with the outline, but, you know, I keep working things in different ways and then I ask for help and I think, okay, here's this other way to work it. The thing I've learned when I was I was having a block for a couple of weeks and then I realized, I mean, I always tell people, ask me, what do you do with a block? And I always say, and here I am in my own block, and I always say, well, you either, it's something, it's you know, the story, it's not right, you have to walk around it, it needs time, and, and so on. But in the middle of that, you know, I ask for help. And then what starts happening is something, things get into my hands, I'll be looking through something, I find exactly what I need. But there's a lot of power in that. And 
my life is full of mentors and teachers, as everyone's life is, although we don't always recognize them. You know, I had wonderful teachers. I had a teacher in sixth grade who, she was a little rough, but I, I think what she was, she was very honest. And she, I always remember, and I, I wish I could find her again, but she was, she always, I noticed, she always noticed that I was going through something, even though she wouldn't say too much, but that she noticed and that she also held everybody to a standard really mattered. Mm. I had some wonderful, Meridale LeSueur, one incredible activist, writer, poet, speaker, being, you know, in out of uh, the Minneapolis, St. Paul area. She was a wonderful mentor. I had just started writing, and, and um, she believed in me. And there are other mentors and teachers. Mm. The ocean, when I lived in Hawaii for a while, the ocean and the, you know, at the very end of, um, of Crazy Brave, at the afterward, there was the, that learning canoes and, and the Pacific and going out was part, a definite part of my journey and letting go of the fear tentacles that had mm-hmm. almost uh, destroyed me. Mm-hmm. I mentioned when we were scheduling this interview that this interview will air on Bread and Roses. It's um, KBU's feminist radio program. It's been around since 1978, women passing the torch and keeping this airspace alive. You mentioned that you found yourself in certain situations where you felt voiceless. Sometimes those settings are feminist settings. You know, so often feminist settings are the domain of white women, and uh, you're often asked to represent or speak for every Native woman who ever lived. Um, (laughs) That's true. Yeah. (laughs) And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind if... If you have anything to share in this forum about, you know, experiences, feeling voiceless, and, and what, what that experience has been like, what causes it, and what must change. I guess I go back when, you know, we were talking. I go back to being, I guess, the first consciousness I had of the feminist movement, which, you know, which became... I think it's a very was it was and is a very important catalyst for human rights in this country, and and I especially appreciate the way uh, Cherokee activists and and tribal leader uh, Wilman Mankiller handled, mm. you know, handled a kind of indigenous feminism, but which is really about empower you know really about empowerment empowerment of the female, which is nothing new to. Our tribes and our traditional tribal uh, structures, that is usually the case. It's when those structures have been interfered with by um, other systems that things have gone crazy. And that's another whole discussion. (laughs) That's another, another, you know, I don't even go into that right now. But I guess I always remember being, I was a young native student at the University of New Mexico. I was different in that I had, well, not so different. I remember one of the students had five children, and I thought, oh, my God, how's she doing this? But she would always come show up, just beautiful, you know, always dressed neatly and very traditional woman, Navajo woman with her children and had such dignity. And I don't remember her name, oh, you know, but she always inspired me. 
as I was running here and there trying to keep it together. And um, and I had two children. At one point, I had my stepdaughter early on, and then she went to live with her other grandparents. But I remember there, you know, we had the native, um, it was the American Indian, you know, our the uh, Kiva Club. And so I hung out over there. That was my center. But I was very intrigued about, you know, the feminist movement and feminist rights and would sit in on uh, many of the readings by the feminists and so on. And, and I thought what was being said was important, but I also felt outside of it. I remember going over to, they had a women's center, and I thought, this is really cool. And I remember going over there, and I had a stroller, and I remember going in there into the room, place with a baby and a stroller and re- and feeling like I was not welcome. Now, I don't mean to say that not everybody, you know, it was just, I, I kept trying. I remember I kept trying to find ways in. Mm. And I felt distinct, you know, distinctly unwelcome. Like I was, you know, it had its own agenda and its own people. But being a Native woman with a baby stroller just didn't quite fit into what was going on. And, you know, that I think that sh- that's probably shifted. Maybe not so much. But um, Same I, that was my first. Yeah, it was my first encounter. Mm-hmm. Since yeah. then, yeah, I mean, I since then I was mentored by, you know, I had wonderful, you know, white feminist mentors who were very conscious of power imbalances, like Adrienne Rich, the poet Adrienne Rich, mm-hmm. for example. I mean, she, you know, she was you know, right there at the forefront. Mm-hmm. You know, another prestigious um, setting where you felt voiceless, I understand, is your master's student at the, in the Iowa Writers' Workshop. <laughs> and uh, I interviewed Sandra Cisneros on Bread and Roses, and she mentioned you, and you mentioned her as, luckily, you guys found each other and got each other through that program, which I I was amazed, you know, not only is it a white privilege campus but the whole dang town is pretty darn white and um but i understand that you overheard the the director of the program one point say to some potential donors that yeah our purpose is pretty much to teach men how to write oh yeah that's just another level yeah i love that you both spoke out about that Uh uh-huh yeah at least you know he was being honest and it surprised me. He was the head. I won't say his name. People who know the writing workshop know. But, you know, he was the head of the writing workshop. And it was an honor to be chosen as, you know, one of two women. And then there were two men, each one a poet, fiction writer. And Jane Ann Phillips, wonderful uh, novelist, was the other woman. And we're sitting there. And I, we heard him say that. And I said, okay, you're a witness. You heard this with me, <laughs> that this is a writing program, basically, for male writers mm-hmm. and um, I think it was it was set up that way and, and certainly many women have come through there mm-hmm. but it, at that point it was a little I don't know I don't really know how much it's changed now or if it's changed much at all my friend uh, the the Muscogee same tribe um, novelist Eddie Tugulate just went through there he said a lot of that had changed hmm. You know the a lot of the racism and and, and the sexism there, but um, 
Mm-hmm. We'll see. We, you know, I guess um, uh, Sandra said that they had never invited back to read read a dove, her or myself. Are you kidding me? Uh uh-uh. uh That's shocking. Yeah, it was a place. It was a, it, it, what was good about it. You know, I mean, it was pretty grueling, and and it was um, it was a good place in many other, for many other mm-hmm. reasons. You know, you were faced with basically what you're going to face in the world, and you it made you. It was a place that in which you you had to know you had to know what you were there to do and focus in on writing, and it gave me the opportunity to do so. And they brought in many many um, really fine, you know, many many. Uh, there were many opportunities there. That was Joy Harjo, poet, musician, and activist, speaking with Bread and Roses from her home in Oklahoma. Interview recorded earlier this week. And now we'll share a song selected specifically by Joy Harjo for this program. This is This America. you will see truly you will see your breath your breathing as clouds you will see the ancestor dreamers the witness winds they are watching this America
That was Joy Harjo with This America, a single she released in 2011. We'll continue now with the final segment of our interview with Joy Harjo. In this section, Joy talks about the way she and other Native women forged their own identity during the awakening of consciousness in Indian country in the 1970s. They formed a community of sisterhood in the era where there were no domestic violence services or safe houses. This is Joy Harjo. You know, when you were a young mother um, in college um, and, and you were starting to write your poetry and, uh, of course, you were exiled from your mother's land uh, and, uh, and, and experiencing um, intimate violence in, in some of your relationships. And during those days, there was just no shelters or safe houses. And your house very often ser- served that purpose for other women at the time. I was wondering if um, you could talk about um, how how you and other uh, Native women friends supported each other and and how you formed um, your own identity during uh, the awakening of, of consciousness in Indian country, despite um, you know being asked to um, subsume women's issues be- beneath the the, the, the travel struggle. You know not. Um, you know, just to talk about your personal struggles, um, but um, but if you could uh, talk a little bit about um, how you came together with other women. Well, I think it's a natural thing. I think you just seek each other out, and I think women going to the university, I mean, you just have things in common as Native women. Mm-hmm. And so we would hang out with each other, and then you start talking, and you find out, you know, there's similar stories going on. Everybody was, everybody, every student struggles, you know, generally, unless they, come, you know, come from a background with money. But people were struggling, and so you think, well, then we'll share. People eat together, or you share what you have. And, um, you know, you hang out with each other, and, and then the stories start, you know, the stories are there. You know, there's there were... You know, there was, you know, a lot of stories of people with their partner, you know, partners and husbands who supported them and who were wonderful. And then there were others who, you know, we had to, you know, there was a struggle and struggle with violence. I look back now and I guess I had a really wonderful talk with my son. He was on his way through here to go to a workshop for his job. And we had a really really good talk and it enabled me to let go things I've held on to I mean because at mothers we want the best for our children and when you're a young mother you sometimes you know it's it's a very it's a hardest it's the most difficult job in the world mothering or being a parent being a parent it's a very difficult job and having an extended family is having a safety net or having a parent or parents or a spouse of, you know, a, a, a spouse uh, or having, you know, grandparents, aunts, uncles, that's that's really important. And I had been banished from my home and there was no, for telling the truth, and there was nobody there except I made a family of my friends. Mm-hmm. You know, we made, we made, you know, we made family. And um, so, and I wasn't the only one. I mean, people people have all, had all kinds of stories, but we were there for each other and, and, and helped take care of each other and babysat for each other. That was a big one, you know, yeah. babysat. 
but you know it just wasn't it's it's not hard it's not hard to be in in women whether you're a whatever woman whatever native non-native there's always we always there's a lot that we carry and mm-hmm. even if you have a wonderful spouse or who is helpful and um it's still the mother really carries carries the burden you come home you you clean you cook yeah. and the children i mean you're the the center you know mm-hmm. you take care of that center but yeah we were I, it's the way that you know women meet and get together everywhere you just bond and and what you find out early on if you're involved in any kind of domestic violence is that the at least at that time they police would not get involved unless you had a um had a um what do you call it um that legal uh, restraining order restraining order yes and even then the restraining orders are kind of a joke but um yeah i remember my my daughter's father was on a horrible alcoholic binge and i couldn't even go into my house i came and he he was in there but the police wouldn't do anything they said, well, does he live here? Yes, but he's being violent. Well, I can't do anything because he hasn't done anything yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it was always, well, they haven't done anything yet, so we can't do anything. <laughs> but, you know, and, and so on and so on. It wasn't me, but it was several of us. But there was no such thing as a safe house. Or there was no, today, I was telling uh, my boyfriend this story, you know, I was looking at the news on my phone, and here in um, this, the Tulsa area, somebody was, a, a 14-year-old boy had turned his parents in for beating him. And I thought, oh, my God, this has changed mm-hmm. so drastically. And I don't know if it's changed that way. I know that there are safe houses now, which are, that's a, you know, even in, you know, reservation areas or, or tribal areas. There's all, Now we have domestic abuse and domestic violence shelters which is great and places that help women get on their feet and the men i think the men need help too yes. you know because they're it's we're a family all of us and you know the whole family needs help but then again you can't help somebody unless they want to be but it's really an issue it's really a family issue a family of yeah, yeah it really mm-hmm. is Human family issue. <laughs> yes. Joy, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, too. And I'm glad to hear your program is still going. And Yes. And we're going to come uh, meet you on Wednesday, next <laughs> Wednesday. We'll be at right. the at the performance, not lecture, performance. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> thank right. you so much. You. Have a wonderful evening. Have fun with your okay. musical. <laughs> okay. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Joy Harjo, poet, musician, activist, member of the Muscogee Creek Nation. I want to thank Joy Harjo and my co-producer, Delphine Crescenzo. You've been listening to Bread and Roses on KBOO. We're going to go out with one more song that Joy Harjo selected for this program tonight. This is from Winding Through the Milky Way. This is Joy Harjo with Equinox. Good night, everybody.
by force. If I do, I will find a war club in my hand. And the smoke of grief staggering toward the sun. Your nation dead beside you. Touched by the rain. 
radiance that the sun discloses. Oh. 